So with that, we are in our study of the book of Genesis, and uh, as I said, this week we're going to be talking about one of the strangest things in the Bible. We're about to get into the life of Noah, the great flood, and the intriguing issue of what necessitated the great flood. In other words, why did God flood the earth? When he was on the earth, Jesus talked about the coming rapture of the church, that time in the future when he will come and gather his church, those who believe in him together, and remove them from the earth before catastrophic events like Antichrist rise to power, the tribulation, and everything described in Revelation chapters 6 through 19 take place on the earth. The rapture is that time where Jesus is going to come and snatch up everyone who believes in him and remove them from the earth before all, all those events unfold. Those chapters in Revelation describe a time period when evil is empowered on the earth and God is judging the earth by pouring out his wrath upon it. That's why the rapture is good news for believers. We're going to be out of here. That's the good news. And I want to read you a little bit of Jesus' description of what things would be like on the earth in the days just before the rapture. Jesus told his disciples, this is what it's going to be like just before all that stuff unfolds. It should be on your outlines. It says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." So clearly the main point that Jesus is making is that the rapture will come as a complete shock to those who don't believe in Jesus. Everyone's going to be going about their business just like it's any other day, completely unaware of the catastrophe that is about to befall the earth. It's worth noting though that out of all the examples Jesus could have used, he chose the days of Lot and the days of Noah. He didn't choose the days of Joshua and the city of Jericho, which suddenly fell in one day after they marched around it for the seventh time. He didn't choose the days of Moses, even though there were catastrophes that fell upon Egypt in the form of the plagues. And both of those scenarios speak about catastrophes sent by the Lord, Jericho and Egypt. But God chose the days of Lot and the days of Noah. And for that reason, I, along with several Bible scholars, hold that there are some deeper truths to be revealed here about the days of Lot and the days of Noah. And we studied the days of Lot a few years ago, and you can listen to that message online. I put the link on your outlines. Today we're gonna look at Genesis 6 as we seek to discover why Jesus specifically said it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah on the earth just before the rapture takes place. What makes the days of Noah distinct from all the other time periods in the Bible? So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. We'll stop there for a second. If you were with us last week, we studied through the genealogy of Genesis 5, and you would have noticed that people were living a really long time, like 900 years on average. So follow the math with me in the days of Noah. If a man has four kids and then he lives long enough to see those four kids have four kids of their own, in just five generations, 
his family is gonna number 96 in total. In 10 generations, the family will number 3,070. In 20 generations, the family will number 3,120,000. And in 30 generations, you're at 3,220,000,000. So if a generation in the Bible is generally 40 years and there are at least 40 generations listed in Genesis 5, time-wise, the population on the earth during Noah's day would have conservatively been billions of people. Billions of people, and I say conservative because if you think when people are living for 900 years that they're only having four kids, I think you're a little bit misdirected there. And we've seen the same thing happen in our lifetimes. From the time Noah got off the ark, it took until 1867 for the world to reach one billion in population again. But it only took from 1867 to 1935, less than 100 years for the earth's population to reach two billion. And from 1935, it only took until 1965 to reach over 6 billion. And we're now over 7.3 billion with over 360,000 people born every day. So to point out an obvious parallel between the days of Noah and our own, there was a population explosion. Go ahead and write that down. There was a population explosion in the days of Noah, and there's a population explosion in our day today. And then we'll keep reading into verse two. So it came to pass that the sons of God, now in your Bibles, underline that phrase, sons of God saw the daughters of men, underline daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The phrase sons of God there in verse two is the Hebrew phrase, benai ha'elohim. It refers to something directly created by God. In the New Testament, Adam is described as Benaiha Elohim because Adam was directly created by God. But in the Old Testament, that phrase is exclusively used to describe angels who are direct creations of God. The phrase daughters of men is the Hebrew phrase Benoth Adam or Benoth Adam, which means daughters of Adam. So let's just start here with what this verse is literally saying. Verse two is literally saying that angels came to earth and took human wives for themselves. And I know that sounds absolutely incredible and absolutely crazy, but that's starting with the language, what it literally says. So let's keep reading, let's keep studying, and let's see what else we can learn. And I wanna remind you that the opposite of an angel is not a demon. An angel is a type of being, just like a human is. You can have a good human and a bad human. An angel is a type of being. There are angels that are allied to God that are still called angels, and there are angels that are allied to Satan, and those are known as fallen angels. So these would be fallen angels, angels that were allied to Satan that have come to the earth to do this. To do what, and why would they do it? Well, let's keep investigating. Now verse three is important because I want you to notice that verse three is in response to what has happened in verses one and two. So in response to what's happened in verses one and two, it says in verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 
So you get the sense that God is looking on disapprovingly at what's happened in verses one and two. He's shaking his head and he's saying, they're striving with me. They're forgetting that they're just mortal men. They're just flesh and bone. And that's important because we're going to see in the next few verses that mankind is gonna give himself fully to these sins that are mentioned in verses one and two. Mankind is not going to repent of its sexual activity with fallen angels. Mankind will not isolate and cast out those members of society who have done this. It will instead welcome this activity to such a degree that it's gonna spread throughout the entire human race, essentially. Verse four, I have this whole verse underlined in my Bible, and I'd recommend you do the same. It says, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The word giants means just that. It means giants in the original Hebrew. The word in Hebrew is Nephilim. It means fallen ones as well as giants. And the only time that that specific word shows up again in the Bible is in Numbers 13.33 when Israel sent the spies into the promised land and all of them except Caleb and Joshua come back with a terrible report. Do you remember what their report was? We can't go invade the promised land because it's full of giants, giants. So what this verse is telling us is that the offspring, the result of these fallen angels and human women having sexual intercourse, the result of that were giants being born. And then we're told more than that, that these giants are, quote, the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So it's literally saying these are the famous ancient men that are known all over the world. Now, what could they mean by that? Well, whenever you find a mythology or a folklore that appears in every major culture around the world, at the same time in history. And these are cultures that we know were not talking to each other, right? We know the Inca and the Maya were not talking to people in China or people in Africa. We know that they were isolated at that time in history. But when you find a common mythology that appears in all these cultures at the same time, even though they weren't communicating, it means that that mythology has its origins in reality. Something real happened that may have got embellished or exaggerated, but its roots are in something that actually happened. Practically every culture in the world has a catastrophic global flood in their mythology. Likewise, the Bible is telling us here about another mythology that appears in almost every other culture, the mythology of titans, demigods, half man, half god, humans with exaggerated strength or muscles or height or power, Beings that were always the result in mythology of some sort of sexual union between a God and a regular human person. And the Bible is telling us that's who these titans, these demigods were. That's why these cultures all talk about them. It was the Nephilim, that's what the Bible's telling us. But the explanation it gives for their origins is both fantastic and disturbing because we're told that these titans were created, quote, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. I haven't actually seen this story in any children's Bibles that I've ever thumbed through for some reason. So so hang with me and we'll keep unpacking this. Uh, It was hard putting this message in the right order to, to make things make sense. So what I'm gonna do is just try and answer a few questions while we're here and then we'll keep working through Genesis six 
And then we'll come back and we'll try and clear up a little bit more about the Nephilim. So the most obvious question would seem to be, why? Why? Why would fallen angels do this? What would be the point? Well, let's go back to the very, very first prophecy in the Bible, the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, where God speaks after Adam and Eve have sinned. And in part of that prophecy, he addresses Satan, and the Lord says, you might remember this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan hears that and he realizes, okay, God's plan to fix the problem of sin on the earth is to send a savior. And that savior is going to arrive in the form of a child that a woman is going to give birth to. Satan understands that from the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. It's very clear. So is Satan going to take this lying down? Is he gonna just wait around for this to happen? Of course not. So he gets to work on a plan of sabotage. And the plan that Satan settles upon is a plan of genetic sabotage. The idea is this, if I can corrupt the entire human gene pool with DNA that is not human, with fallen angel DNA, then there will eventually be no humans left that are genetically untainted. And so a savior won't be able to be born because a savior can't be born from a woman whose genetics are tainted with fallen angel Nephilim DNA. Can't happen and God's plan will be thwarted. So write this down. Genesis 6 chronicles Satan's attempt to genetically derail God's plan to send a redeemer. It chronicles Satan's attempt to genetically derail God's plan to send a redeemer. He doesn't know who this woman is going to be. He doesn't know what line of people this woman is going to be from. He just knows it's going to be a woman. So he does what he can with the information and tries to go about genetically corrupting the entire human race. Because Nephilim are not human. They're not human. They're not made in the image of God. Jesus would not ultimately die for the Nephilim. They're not part of God's plan for salvation. These half-fallen angel, half-human hybrids are essentially pre-damned. They're pre-damned. And so Satan knows, if I can pull this off, God's plan is going to be ruined before it, it can even begin. There's not going to be anybody to save. I'm going to corrupt everyone. Well, let's see the result of mankind embracing this wicked behavior. In verse five it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Write this down. So the days of Noah were marked by an obsession with evil and violence. There was an obsession with evil and violence. And we know there was violence all over the earth, but the Bible goes deeper in telling us that this violence and evil was in their thoughts and imaginations all the time. And if you're wondering, what does that mean, thoughts and imaginations, these mental images? All we need to do is consider our own entertainment choices and what passes as entertainment in our world today. And I've shared this before. I really noticed this shift culturally. It was about 17 years ago now when the CSI TV franchise launched. And in my opinion, it was a benchmark for morality on TV because it marked a shift where the actual crime became the star of the show. 
When I was a kid, we used to watch Murder, She Wrote all the time, and the murder was like quick and implied, and it was over very quickly, and then the whole show was about solving the murder. When CSI came out, it changed the whole game, and suddenly the focus became the actual crime itself. And it spawned, as you can tell, an infinite number of TV shows where the main star of the show is not the detective solving the crime, it's the actual crime itself. And so what happens is we tune in episode after episode to watch a more deviant, dark, imaginative, and evil act. That's what the shows that do well do. They have the most dark, most imaginatively evil content out there. And a simple murder doesn't cut it on TV anymore. The murder needs to be exotic. It needs to be excruciating, it needs to be torturous, it needs to be perverted, demented in some way. Then we'll grab our popcorn and we'll tune in to watch. You know, when I browse Netflix these days and I go on and I'm, what's on Netflix? It's literally like, okay, violent, disturbing, and dark. Yep, violent, disturbing, and dark. Violent, disturbing, and dark. Like show after show after show after show. If you watch them all day, 24 hours a day, you couldn't possibly get through all of the shows that are violent, disturbing, and dark. And they wouldn't be pumping out this stuff like crazy if people weren't consuming it like crazy. And we are. I've shared before, we don't need a coliseum. We don't need gladiators. We get our fix of murder and death from the sofa in our living room. And we consider those ancient Romans and those cultures to be savages for their bloodlust, but we are in reality no different, no different at all. Jesus said that evil begins in the human heart and in our thoughts, and we've used entertainment to create a playground for our evil imaginations where we assemble on a regular basis to partake of it. Verse six, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. So follow the flow, Bible students. At a minimum, at a minimum, we can all agree that God's reason for flooding the earth is found in the first five verses of Genesis 6, right? We, we, we can all agree that. That's pretty logical. This is not a massive investigation. All you have to do to understand why God flooded the earth is understand and unlock the mysteries of the first five verses of Genesis 6. That's all you need to focus on. In verse eight, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Underline the word grace, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse nine, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Underline the word perfect. Perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now obviously Noah's not literally perfect. We know he sinned too. How? Because he wasn't Jesus Christ. And that's why we think there's, there's something more going on with that word perfect. It can't mean literally perfect. In the Hebrew, it's tamim, which means without blemish, sound, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. It's a term actually used with regard to physical defects. It's actually saying he was without physical defect. In other words, only Noah was genetically uncorrupted, physically. Out of his reverence for the Lord, he himself had not participated in any of the Nephilim perversity and hadn't allowed his family to either. And that's how far the extent of Satan's genetic conspiracy had reached. According to verse nine and what I believe it's saying, only Noah and his family were left untainted. And that's why they were the only ones invited into the ark. Verse 10, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. Picking up a theme here, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh had corrupted their way. Three times the word corrupt comes up. In the Hebrew it means gone to ruin, decayed or perverted. And I would suggest to you that the reason the flood was sent was because the population of the earth was corrupted in an irreversible way. It was genetically corrupted. And the result of all this corruption was just more evil and more and more violence. And yet, the people weren't looking for an escape from that. They weren't open to the message Noah was preaching. They mocked the only righteous family living among them. So make a note of this. Horrific worldwide violence was the norm. Horrific worldwide violence was the norm. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself, and bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, and then underline this, according to all that God commanded him, so he did, so he did. As we mentioned last week, Noah and his family would seem to be a type, a model, a picture of the Jews during the end times. God has a plan to protect them from the flood, just as the Lord has a plan to protect a remnant of the Jews through the tribulation period. And we also see again that evil can reach a point of no return. I would suggest that the book of Revelation makes it very clear that the same thing will happen in the last days, the days that we're living in right now. And I'm very torn when I see believers wanting to pray for uh, political or moral revivals in a country, the idea that God can heal our land. And I say that because I don't really read anything in the Bible about that happening in the last days. I don't see anything that lines up with that in any of the pictures that the Bible gives of the last days. Pray for individuals to come and know Jesus? Absolutely. But I don't really see God's plan for the end of the world being countries turning back to Jesus. What seems to happen in scripture is that everything on the outside, politics, wars, domestic issues, natural disasters, just get worse and worse and worse as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus for his church. Noah's hope 
was in the ark. His hope was in the means of escape that the Lord had provided. If his hope had been in everybody in the world suddenly turning to the Lord and the flood not happening, his hope would have been completely misplaced. Likewise, our hope is in the rapture. Jesus coming for his church. If our hope is in our country suddenly developing a moral conscience, then we're hoping in the wrong thing. Pray for individuals, pray for the lost, pray for our political leaders, but don't expect a spiritual change of direction in our country. The Bible seems to be pretty clear about the fact that for the most part, it's not going to happen. So what are we supposed to do in these crazy days? Well, I'd suggest we should follow Noah's example. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Be led by the Lord and be led by his word. Don't take your cues from the world or the voices in media or culture and society. Take your cues from the word of God. He'll keep you sane. He will give you peace. He will keep you productive and he'll cause you to live in a way that will profit you for eternity. Worry about what God says. The rest is just noise. So let's talk a little bit more about the Nephilim. In my opinion, some of the most compelling and helpful evidence comes from what the rest of the Bible tells us about Genesis 6. Specifically, some of the writers of the New Testament From what we can put together, the fallen angels who participated in the satanic conspiracy in the days of Noah are imprisoned in a place called Tartarus, this place called Tartarus, a prison in the lowest, most torturous depths of the dimension of death commonly known as Hades. I'm gonna give you a whirlwind recap on Hades. If you don't understand it, you can talk to me afterwards. Go back and listen to this slowly a few times till you get it. The essential idea of Hades is this. It is a dimension of death. When a person died, they would go to Hades. In Hades were essentially two sides. There's a place of torment for those who had rejected the Lord and were awaiting their final judgment. And then there was a place of comfort known as paradise or the bosom of Abraham. And that's where people who had their faith in God to provide a means of salvation would go and they would wait there till God provided that means of salvation. So everyone who died in the Old Testament believing in Jesus during that time period, guys like Noah, that's where they went, to the paradise side of the dimension of death to await Jesus making payment for their sins. And we're gonna find out in these verses here, in between these two sides of Hades is essentially a deep, deep dark pit, and in the bottom of that pit is a place known as Tartarus. And we're gonna see in scripture here that that seems to be where God imprisoned these fallen angels who took part in this conspiracy in the days of Noah. Should be on your outline, in 2 Peter, Peter writes this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, the literal word there is Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So what we see right here, very, very clear. God's talking about angels, talking about the days of Noah, and says those angels are imprisoned. It's interesting because it can't be talking about all fallen angels because not all fallen angels are bound. 
There are fallen angels right now doing the devil's work on the earth, actively serving Satan. But Peter makes reference here to a very specific group of fallen angels who because of something they did are currently in chains in this place called Tartarus. And apparently it's something they did around the time of Noah. In 1 Peter, also on your outlines, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the, and then underline, spirits in prison, who formerly were, and then underline, disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited, when, underline, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So there was only one group of spirits. There's only one group of potential spirits who were mentioned in the Bible as being disobedient in the days of Noah. Only one group, the fallen angels that are mentioned in the first five verses of Genesis chapter six, the Nephilim conspiracy. And apparently sometime between Jesus' death and the first time that people saw him resurrected, Jesus descended into Hades where this passage tells us that he, quote, preached to those fallen angels in Tartarus, most likely declaring to them, guys, there is an end to the power of sin and death. You have no power, no authority now. Your boss has no power, no authority whatsoever. Your scheme has completely failed. Scripture will also tell us that at that time when Jesus went down in between the time when he died on the earth and he was first seen resurrected, he went down to Hades and emptied the paradise side where every person was waiting for God to provide a means of salvation. Jesus was that means of salvation and so when Jesus died and rose again, he was able to lead them up to heaven because payment had been made for their sins. So none of those Old Testament saints are in Hades right now. The paradise side of Hades is completely empty because Jesus has made a way for us. Then also on your outlines, in the book of Jude, we read, and the angels, underline angels, who did not keep their proper domain, underline proper domain, but left their own abode, he, God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude talks about these angels who didn't stay within the bounds that they were supposed to and were engaged in behavior that was similar to what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah namely that it was sexual and perverse in nature in ways that went against God's design. So write this down. The days of Noah were marked by rampant sexual immorality. Rampant sexual immorality. And my goodness, is that ever true of the world today? Pornography is mainstream. It's joked about in public. I heard Ravi Zacharias share the statistic that the average amount of time a man who views porn has the same woman on screen for is one minute. No matter how long the video is, one minute before he changes the video because she can't hold his attention longer than that. Such is the insatiable appetite that sexual sin creates. It creates an unquenchable thirst for more and more and more. And that depraved thirst leads to darker and darker things. I was talking to a woman at my gym who actually works for the uh, child sex crimes unit of the Vancouver Police Department. And she was just sharing with me that 
the issue now is that the largest percentage of mainstream pornography, so if you took all the online porn that people are watching and you said, what's most of it like thematically? She said the largest percentage is based around one person abusing another. In other words, simulated rape. That's what people want to watch. And that is the normal mainstream genre of porn right now. And she told me that the the tragedy of this, the real tragedy, is that when kids and teens go on the internet and find this stuff, they now grow up believing this is what normal sexual behavior is. This is what a normal sex life looks like in any type of relationship. And boys and girls both seek this out now as their norm. And for today's generation, sex is just something you find on an app. It's found as easily as swipe and write. It's not a profound spiritual connection. It's recreational and it's disposable. And when we make any technological advance, have you noticed this? The first question we ask is, how can we use this for sexual immorality? That's the first thing we do with technology now. I could go on and on and on about the state of our world and often we miss it because we're like the proverbial frog in boiling water. It's happened so slowly but so quickly over the last few decades we're not even aware of what is now considered normal and how far it is from the days when I was a kid and the guys who wanted to view porn had to put on a a shady coat and sunglasses and hat and a wig and go into some seedy store and pray to God that nobody saw them doing it. We're in a completely different place. All that stuff is already in our homes right now. It's already there. So the days of Noah were marked by rampant violence, sexual immorality, and the rejection of God's design for humanity. But perhaps most sobering of all, Jesus chose to highlight the days of Noah and the days of Lot because in both cases, The people were stubbornly unrepentant. Write that down. They were stubbornly unrepentant. One of the things I remind myself of if I ever feel bad for myself is that Noah preached for a hundred years. How do you keep doing the altar call after year 30 when no one's responded, you know? And people are calling him out of his mind and he preaches for a hundred years. The men in Sodom, if you remember the story, they kept trying to get in and rape the angels who were visiting Lot and his family, even when the angels struck them with blindness. Their hard-heartedness over their sin, their refusal to give up their wickedness, made them blind to the fact that their world was about to be judged by God. And In Romans 1, Paul lays out for us the devastating truth that when we reject God, when we reject his ways, the Lord will allow us to do so. And the more we dig in our heels and refuse to acknowledge God, the more we deceive ourselves because the more the Lord allows us to deceive ourselves. We start out by telling ourselves this is right when we know it's wrong. And if we won't turn from that, the Lord actually allows us to eventually believe that what we're doing is right. It's a tragic, tragic place to be. In other words, the more we reject God, the more insanity seems like sanity to us. It's a terrifying thing. And yet it's what I see happening all the time now. I could go into example after example, but I trust we're all aware enough to recognize that the culture we're living in today believes some astonishingly irrational, illogical, and ridiculous things. I hope we can all agree on that. All I'm gonna say is that if you believe that you are a cat, it does not make you a cat. And the fact that we're even discussing that sort of thing as a serious cultural issue should give us some insight into the state of our culture today. 
The Western world has is, is truly lost its mind, and that's not hyperbole. Romans 1 tells us what it looks like when the world determines together that it will reject God, except for a small minority of believers. Uh, the world looks a lot like our world. We can't see straight. We can't think straight. We can't tell right from wrong. We, we can't even tell fact from fiction. We can't tell the truth from a lie because we prefer the lie to the truth. Because of what Jesus says in his word about the days leading up to the rapture being like the days of Lot and the days of Noah, I have to draw the conclusion that as it was in both of those examples, there's no revival coming to our countries on a political or governmental level. Our countries are not gonna suddenly develop a conscience that will result in a wave of morality suddenly reversing the course of our societies. That's not the picture Jesus paints in his word. Our hope is that as we rapidly approach the rapture, we will see the church, you and I, recognize the season we're in and become more and more bold with the truth, more and more radical about living for Jesus, more and more urgent with the gospel, more and more desperate with our prayers, asking the Lord to move and save those individuals in our lives. Canada's not gonna turn to Jesus as a country. The United States is not gonna turn to Jesus as a country, but your family members might, your coworkers might, your classmates might. And the book of Revelation makes it clear that after the rapture, the greatest revival in the history of the world will take place. But even in that revival, it won't be governments and countries turning to the Lord, it will be individuals. Individuals who suddenly remember the gospel that you shared with them and will desperately seek the Lord and will find him. And while all this is fascinating, we have to address the question, so what's happening today, Jeff, that could possibly be parallel to the Nephilim of Noah's day? If the whole idea is that the days leading up to the rapture are gonna be like the days of Noah in some ways, well, what's the big deal with the Nephilim? Because the Nephilim are in the days of Noah. Are there gonna be Nephilim on the earth in the days leading up to the rapture? Well, in the whole Nephilim incident, two key things take place. Make a note of this. The first is that people reject God's design for human life. They reject God's design for human life. So they threw out God's design of one man and one woman, and that's how children are born, and they pursued something different. And their thinking was, we can improve on God's design. We can go above and beyond God's design. The second thing that took place, write this down, was people rejected God's provision for the problem of sin and death. They rejected God's provision for the problem of sin and death. You know, God agrees that the human species is broken. Do you know that? God agrees that death is a problem that needs solving. And it's a problem that the Lord has solved for us at the greatest cost. The Father sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, the sins that caused death to enter the world, the sins that caused entropy and decay to enter the world. And God's plan for the problem of death is that we would be made new and perfect in eternity for eternity with him. That's his solution. Did you know that today there's a field of science and technology that without realizing it is fully devoted to solving the problem of sin and death, curing the effects of sin and death? The field is called transhumanism. 
And the stated goal of transhumanism is taking control of man's evolution. So using the fields of, of genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics, the, the goal of transhumanism is to end human decay and aging and achieve immortality, living forever. And we are so much closer to this than anybody really realizes. The simple process, I'll give you some insight on this. The simple process would work something like this. I'll take the example of an arm. Somebody has to have an arm amputated. So technology advances and we figure out we can make a wooden arm, right? They don't have to walk around with just a stub. We can like create a nice pretty arm for them and put some tattoos on there and style it out. And then we, then we progress to a hinged arm, like a hinged arm. It can now do this. So it looks a little more natural when they walk. And then things take a quantum leap and they suddenly say, you know what, let's, let's actually add fingers to this hand. But then technology kicks in and, and, and now we can actually have a hand that you can push buttons on your other hand and this other hand will open and close. You can hold a soda can if you want to. You can do that. And then technology keeps advancing. And we get to the place which we've gone past already where now a robotic arm can interface with the nerves on the end of a person's arm and respond to those nerve impulses and actually move based on what the person is telling his arm to do on a mental level. And then we've actually advanced even to the level of creating artificial skin with thousands and thousands of artificial nerve endings on them. And I've actually seen video of this. There are prosthetics out there that are so advanced, interfaced with a person's nerves that they can pick up an egg and crack it or crush a soda can. That's how fine-tuned the technology is. And very soon we're gonna be building robotic arms as good as the real thing. I mean very, very soon. And then we're gonna reach a very interesting threshold where we will be able to build artificial arms that are better than our actual arms. We'll be able to build arms that are stronger, more precise, never get tired, never cramp, never get carpal tunnel. And then we'll have to deal with philosophical questions like, wouldn't it make logical sense if there is no God and that ethical quandary is removed, wouldn't it make logical sense to upgrade yourself if you could? I mean, wouldn't it actually rationally make sense to amputate your perfectly healthy arm and replace it with something better? And it might seem shocking, but when you examine it from a logical perspective, it's an extremely logical conclusion to reach. And this question is being answered in the affirmative by the transhumanist movement in every area of our physiology. And so the great challenge of transhumanism is solving the question, what makes us human? What makes us human? Are we the sum total of our memories and experiences? And if so, then what does that mean about who or what we are when we can start doing things that we're already doing like being able to implant fake memories? into our own minds. If we're just the sum total of our memories and experiences, what happens when we can actually edit our memories and change them? The ultimate goal of transhumanism is to isolate human consciousness, what we would call our spirit, to separate it from the body, to contain it. Because if you can isolate whatever human consciousness is, then you can move it. You can transfer it between 
hosts. And the human body becomes just the first host that your consciousness occupies. And eventually we can build robotic prosthetic hosts to which we could transfer our consciousness. And if we could do that, then we would have just achieved immortality because we will enable our consciousness to outlive the host that we're currently in. The reason this is so serious is because it is using human means to try and solve the problem of the fall of man that was caused by sin. Instead of looking to Jesus, who has saved us from sin and death, it's looking at ourselves saying, we'll save ourselves from sin and death. We'll save ourselves from the consequences of sin. It's spitting in the face of God as our creator, and it's spitting in the face of Jesus as our savior. Do you remember what God said after Adam and Eve had sinned, after sin and death had entered the world? I'll read it to you from Genesis 3. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. So God removed Adam and Eve from the garden because had they eaten the fruit of this tree of life that was there too, after sinning, they would have lived forever in their sinful state. And the Lord knew that would be an unspeakable tragedy. He looked at the world and he said, you don't wanna live forever in this world, this broken place. I've got something better for you. From God's perspective, it is grace that we only live the relatively short time that we do. Because from heaven's perspective, nobody should wanna live for a thousand years here on the earth the way it is. Especially when you could be with the Lord and be made new. Transhumanism says that's exactly what we want. We don't need God because we are God. And I would suggest to you that transhumanism is thrusting us closer and closer to a line that is so insulting to God that God will not allow the human race to cross it. We're doing things and pursuing things that are so blasphemous that God will just not allow it to continue very long. Secondly, there may be a, another parallel. Just as the Nephilim were a group of people who were irreversibly damned, belonging to Satan, there's another group mentioned in the Bible who will emerge after the rapture and will willingly become irreversibly damned. I'm speaking of those who will choose to take the infamous mark of the beast. From scripture, we know that the mark of the beast will be irreversible. And that causes me to speculate because there are a very short number of things that are irreversible. When people say it's a tattoo, you can get a tattoo removed. When people say, oh, it's gonna be a microchip implant, you can cut that out. So what is a mark or something that would be genuinely irreversible? I have to speculate that it's most likely something genetic. And that may very well be another parallel to Genesis 6, that those who choose to ally themselves with Antichrist will allow their genetics to be modified in some way. Obviously, that's just a speculation, but an interesting one. So if you understand the Nephilim of Genesis 6, if you understand what's going on in Genesis 6, the flood makes so much more sense because it changes the reason for the flood completely. It explains why the situation was not repairable as there had to be a cleansing. There had to be a reset of the human gene pool. As we said last week, if you believe the only reason for the flood is because people were bad, 
then you have to explain why God didn't do something similar any of the other times that follow. Because man has been bad plenty of times since the flood. I don't know if you're aware of this. After all, when the flood was over, the only promise God gave is that he wouldn't destroy the earth again by a flood. He didn't give the promise he would never destroy the earth. He said, I'll never destroy it again by a flood. Believe me when I say God has lots of other options on the table should he want to destroy the world again. Not only do Nephilim make more sense of the flood, but also one of the most troubling issues that Christians have with the Bible, the ethnic cleansing that takes place in the promised land in the book of Joshua. Many believers have a hard time understanding or explaining why does God command when they go into the promised land Israel to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain ethnic groups that are in the promised land? Well, if you trace the bloodlines, you trace the evidence, and you do the full study, you'll find that each of those specific ethnic groups was infected through their lineage with Nephilim DNA. And God doesn't command Israel to wipe out every tribe. He only mentions very specific certain tribes. And they are the tribes that have a connection to this Nephilim DNA. As we read in Genesis 6, there were Nephilim on the earth after the flood too. We're talking about these tribes that were asked to be annihilated by God. God asked Joshua to do that. Genesis 6 says there were giants on the earth after the flood too. So how did they get there? How did they get there? Very quickly, there's two possibilities. Some say one possibility is that one of the sons of Noah may have had a wife who was infected. Perhaps she came from a family that had been infected. But the second possibility is just that Satan sent more fallen angels to repeat the plan but on a smaller scale. And for whatever reason, the Lord allowed it. When the Lord prophesied to Abraham long after the flood that his children and his children's children would receive the promised land forever, you know Satan took note. Satan took note. Because now he knew that God's plan was to send a savior through the line of Abraham. Satan's paying attention. So the first thing he learned from Genesis 3.15, he said, ah, oh, God's gonna send a savior. It's gonna be a child born to a woman. I gotta do something with that information. Tries the Nephilim conspiracy thing. Then when the Lord prophesies to Abraham that he is choosing him and his line, now Satan goes, okay, now I know which family the Savior is going to come through. And he knew exactly where Abraham's family would be living in the future because God laid out for Abraham the borders of the promised land. So while Israel was in Egypt for 400 years before they started their journey to the promised land, do you know what Satan did? He turned the promised land into a minefield, a minefield. He filled it with tribes who were full of beautiful women who were into extremely promiscuous and perverted sexual practices. And he put them there to try and entice Israel into sexual sin. He filled the land with giants to try and intimidate them into not following God's instruction. And he accomplished these things by having Nephilim DNA infect these tribes. If you look it up, they all happened to be clustered together in the exact piece of property on the earth that Satan knew God's people would be heading to. Do you think that's just a coincidence? There's no chance. When you understand the Nephilim, you don't have to twist and contort your way into making some logically suspect explanation as to why entire 
ethnic groups had to be wiped out by Israel. I realize you're probably not eager to tell your friends now. Actually, there's a much more simple explanation. You see, angels came down and had sex with women, which gave birth to giants, and that explains the whole thing. I understand that, but hopefully for yourself, it'll bring some clarity. Corrupt DNA makes much more sense. It explains why those ethnic groups in the promised land were not redeemable, and it explains why they had to be eliminated, why it was the only option. And by the way, if you ever doubt why those people groups needed to be eliminated, I want to encourage you to go and do your own research into what their cultures were like. Just take the Canaanites for one example. Their religious practices and the things they were doing in their culture were so wicked, I literally cannot speak about them in church. I mean, just beyond anything you could imagine in terms of psychotic, depraved, abhorrent behavior. And God gave them 400 years to repent. And they didn't. They didn't. They were completely irredeemable. Well, since we're already there, shall we delve a little bit into some other speculations about the Nephilim? I'll give you guys something to talk about over dinner. We'll try and get all the weird stuff into one message. I think that's good value. So I want to be as clear as possible here about something. We believe at New Hope, we believe that Genesis 6 is talking about fallen angels and human women. That's what we believe. However, the things that I'm about to share now, they are speculations, they're possibilities. In the very least, they're fascinating, but I am not taking the emphatic stance that what I'm about to share with you is definitely the reality of things. These are just possibilities. We are emphatic, however, that Genesis 6 is speaking about fallen angels and human women. As we mentioned earlier, whenever you find a mythology that's common across cultures, cultures that didn't communicate with each other, you can safely assume that the origins of that mythology are based in reality. Just as every major ancient culture has a mythology of a great flood and of titans, so too every major ancient culture has a mythology of beings coming from the sky bringing with them secret knowledge of things like architecture, astronomy, math, metallurgy, and even herbalism. And I know if you guys have ever spent any time on the Discovery Channel, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It shows up on cave walls all over the world. Did you know that you cannot slide a single sheet of paper between the stones used to build the Great Pyramid in Giza? You can't put a piece of paper between the stones. And even today, without computers and advanced robotic machines, we couldn't repeat what they did in the pyramids of Giza. We couldn't do it, it'd be impossible. And all over the world, there are these cultures in history that seem to suddenly explode with advanced knowledge, building incredible structures seemingly out of nowhere. And here's what I mean. Multiple cultures that don't show a progression to advanced architecture. There's no progression. There's no mini pyramids and bigger ones and bigger ones. There's just this explosion of incredibly advanced architecture all of a sudden. The Egyptians are the obvious one, but the Inca, the Maya, all over the world. And what you also find in these cultures when you begin to dig into them historically is you find rampant paganism. So you find that their religious practices almost always include forms of bizarre sexual activity and horrific things like human sacrifice almost every single time. And then these cultures, almost all of them, 
tend to just disappear into history. They're there one day and they're just gone. Most likely crumbling under the weight of their own evil because you can reach a place where your society becomes so evil it cannot even function. And there are some Bible scholars who suggest that these visitors from the sky spoken of by ancient cultures were in fact fallen angels. As to, there are Bible scholars who suggest that the modern day phenomenon of aliens and extraterrestrials is simply the same thing, fallen angels. And you know what I find fascinating is that in my lifetime, when I was a kid, if you believed in aliens, it was like, uh, how big is your collection of tinfoil hats in your home, you know? Sure you do, that's great. Many of you remember this, just a few decades ago, right? You believe in aliens, are you out of your mind? The viewpoint for at least, what, the last 10 years has shifted all the way to, are you so arrogant as to believe that we're alone in the universe? That's, that's the view today, that's the view. We're almost disappointed when the latest NASA expedition doesn't turn up proof of alien life. In the scientific community, the discovery of, the discovery of intelligent extraterrestrial life is viewed as an inevitability, a matter of when, not if. And I would suggest that, that clearly there's, there's something going on. People keep seeing mysterious things. People keep reporting encounters by the thousands across decades. And, and there's no reason for most of these people to lie. And do you know what the single most common aspect is when somebody reports being abducted by aliens? Sexual deviance. And we miss this. The old joke about, oh, I was taken by an alien and probed. All of that. Sexual experimentation is the number one common denominator that people give when they recount being quote unquote abducted by extraterrestrials. And there's no reason for most of these people to lie. And it's very consistent with the standard operating procedure we see of fallen angels on the earth. They have an obsession with sexual perversity. We know from scripture that angels as beings can move back and forth from the spiritual dimension to our own dimension. We know that they can interact with us physically. The Bible describes angels leading people by the hand in Genesis 19. It describes angels eating and drinking physically in front of people in Genesis 18. It describes angels engaging in physical battle with other humans in 2 Kings 19 and other physical behaviors. So we know that they can move from the spiritual dimension fully into our physical world and interact with us as physical beings. So when people report seeing things that break the laws of our physical universe, such as things in the sky making right angle turns at high rates of speed, there, there are beings in the Bible that are capable of such things, appearing and disappearing. Those beings are angels. Do I believe in extraterrestrial beings? No. Do I believe in extra dimensional beings? Absolutely. And if you believe the Bible, so do you. For all these reasons, there are some who point to the possibility that the phenomenon of aliens and extraterrestrials is quite simply a modern day form of fallen angel activity. And part of the reason for the mainstream acceptance of the idea of extraterrestrial life is the massive media onslaught that we've experienced over the last several decades of TV shows, movies, comics, you name it, about aliens, about aliens. And one interesting possibility is that there's a long game being played here by Satan. As we've talked about, Satan is a student of scripture himself. He's especially a student of prophecy. 
Anytime God reveals what his plan is, Satan gets to work trying to find a way to derail it. So Satan knows that the rapture is coming at some point. He doesn't know when, but he's paying attention to the signs of the times just like we are. And so it would be strategically advantageous for Satan to have an explanation on hand to give to the world after the rapture happens. After all, I think it's safe to assume that most of the world will want an explanation. The last thing Satan wants is people discovering the explanation that this is what was prophesied by God in the Bible, it's happened, so therefore everything else in the Bible must be true as well. That's the last thing Satan wants. So he has to come up with an alternative explanation. And there are those who suggest that one of Satan's ploys may be explaining the rapture away when it happens to those left on the earth as a mass alien abduction. When I first heard that, I thought that idea is absolutely crazy. Nobody is going to buy that. A mass alien abduction, come on. But let me tell you where I'm at right now with my view of society. I can see far more people accepting that explanation than I can accepting the rapture of the church. Far more people, and if you'll think about it, I'm sure you'd agree. And again, these things are speculation. They make for interesting discussion. And I share these things to expand your view of issues that the Bible touches on. And I share these things to encourage you to think and to never shy away from difficult questions. You know, the Bible touches on, on far more than we realize it does. And I share this because even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by paranormal activity. Even when I was a kid, I could tell there's something going on. But I grew up in the era of the church where the explanation was, here's what I can tell you. That's the devil. That's the devil. That was the only explanation that I was ever really given on that sort of stuff. That's evil. That's what I can tell you that. Now go get your toys and let's burn them before Satan consumes your soul for playing with Ninja Turtles. So the, the age I was raised in right there. And so it's a blessing to me when I begin to understand that I believe everything, everything in life is explained by the word of God. Everything is explained by the word of God. And so when you encounter difficult questions, don't dismiss them, don't pretend they don't need to be addressed, but dig into the word of God and you'll find far more there than you would ever imagine. And I'll share one more interesting possibility. When you examine the scriptures, you'll actually find that fallen angels and demons don't seem to be the same thing. There's some very significant differences between them. Fallen angels have bodies. Genesis 6 proves this. Demons, however, don't have bodies, and they seek possession of some sort of body, human or animal. You remember that when Jesus is casting the demon out of a man, and the demon says, can we go into the pigs instead? And then the pigs run off the cliff and die. The idea is that they are bodiless spirits that need to indwell a physical being in order to have a body. There's a fundamental difference between demons, which are spirits, and fallen angels, which are physical beings. So what then are demons? One possibility proposed is that demons are the disembodied souls of Nephilim. In other words, Nephilim, the half-human, half-fallen angel beings, have souls, but not souls that were created by God. Their souls are pre-damned because Jesus didn't die for Nephilim, he died for his creation, which was human beings. So when the flood happened, all these Nephilim suffered 
physical deaths, losing their physical bodies, and their souls immediately belong to Satan. And it may be that those souls are what we call demons. That's just an interesting little tidbit you can share with your kids before bed tonight, okay? So the view that we hold on Genesis 6, let's just call it the, the, the angel incursion view. The angel incursion view. I need to be very honest with you. This view of Genesis 6 is not held by the majority of believers. Most believers hold to a view called the Sethite view or the Sethite theory. And the reason is simply that most believers are eager for any explanation other than fallen angels had sex with human woman and produced half human, half fallen angel hybrids. In fact, the desire for an alternative explanation is exactly where the Sethite view comes from. For the first four centuries of the church, angel incursion was the only view on Genesis 6. In the fifth century, it began to really be considered an embarrassment by the academic establishment. The worship of angels had also heavily infiltrated the church. Remember, this is during the time when the church was married to the state of Rome and you had all these pagan practices coming into the church and politics involved in the church. Celsus and Julian the Apostate, that's how you know you can't trust someone when their nickname is the Apostate. That's always a clue. Celsus and Julian the Apostate were the vocal leaders of the attacks on the angel incursion view. And then Julius Africanus pioneered the Sethite theory as a solution. Cyril of Alexandria also got behind it and then Augustine most notably embraced the view. And so it took hold in Christian academic institutions and became the main view going into the Middle Ages. And it's still widely taught today in most churches who find the angel incursion view more than a bit disturbing. This is what the Sethite view is. It would say that after Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4, the family line of Cain turned ungodly and rebellious, and it's described in Genesis 5. However, Cain's other brother, Seth, who was born later, spawned a family line that remained godly and faithful. The Sethite view says that the sons of God, referred to in Genesis 6-2, refers to leadership in the family line of Seth, and the phrase daughters of men refers to the family line of Cain. So the Sethite view claims that the lines of Cain and Seth were supposed to stay separate because one was godly and one was wicked, but they intermarried. And that was the sin that's being described in Genesis 6. And I feel good because I think you're already thinking that's a really weak explanation. And so I wanna go through just a few problems with it. I'm gonna try and move quick through this. I want this to be available as a resource. This might be a little bit academic, but let me just explain the, the main problems with the Sethite view. Firstly, there's no reason to interpret the phrase sons of God to refer to Sethite men and the phrase daughters of men to refer to Canaanite woman. Every other time the Hebrew term sons of God appears in the Old Testament, it's used to describe angels, never believers. As a term, it's only used for those directly created by God, never humans who are born from other humans. This is why in Luke's genealogy in the New Testament, only Adam is called a son of God. There's nothing in the first two verses of Genesis 6 that points to the phrase daughters of men referring only to the daughters of Cain. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men 
that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So clearly it's talking about all men. If the text wanted to contrast the sons of Seth with the daughters of Cain, then why didn't it just say that? And there's also an intentional distinction that you might have picked up being made in the text between the human and the non-human. You have sons of God and daughters of men. The obvious difference is some are of God and some are of men. Next, the line of Cain was not necessarily all ungodly. When you look at the names of Cain's children, some of them include the name of God in a way that may not have just been all bad. Next, the line of Seth was not necessarily all godly. Enoch was the only person raptured before the flood, and only Noah, his three sons, and their wives were preserved through the flood. The text implies they were the only ones who weren't wicked on the earth. So simply put, if the whole line of Seth was faithful, then why did most of them perish in the flood? The text is primarily about the cause of the flood. And and what would the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain have to do with causing the flood? National and racial distinctions will only enter the earth in Genesis 11. Before that, we don't find any instruction from God for groups to keep separate. Genesis 6.12 makes it clear that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The Sethite view, most importantly, doesn't explain why their offspring were giants. You know, if a believer marries a non-believer today, it doesn't mean their kid is gonna be a giant. So why would the sons allegedly of Seth and the daughters of Cain getting together produce giants? It doesn't explain that at all, and the text seems to put that forth as the primary reason for the flood. And in contrast, Genesis 6-9 presents Noah and his family as unblemished. Another problem is that the Nephilim were only male. There were no women of renown who were produced. And this doesn't make sense if it's just normal humans procreating with other humans. The Sethite view doesn't explain who the spirits in prison are that we read about in 1 Peter. It doesn't explain the specific offense that caused the angels to be imprisoned that are mentioned in 2 Peter. It doesn't explain the proper domain that the angels left that's mentioned in Jude or why God compares it to the sexual immorality practiced and strange flesh pursued in Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't explain why God judged the earth with the flood but never again judged the whole earth even though there were clearly wicked people on the earth after that. It doesn't explain why there are giants on the earth after the flood. It doesn't explain the ethnic cleansing carried out by Israel in the promised land. It doesn't give an explanation for the worldwide ancient mythologies of titans and visitors from the sky and advanced ancient technologies and things like that. And it doesn't explain the difference between fallen angels and demons. Why don't demons have physical bodies but fallen angels do? Angel incursion was the view held by all the traditional rabbinical sources. It's also held by many respected modern day scholars, including names that some of you will know like G.H. Pember, C.H. McIntosh, A.W. Pink, Donald Barnhouse, Henry Morris, Unger, Arnold Frochtenbaum, Hall Lindsey, and Chuck Smith. It's the only viewpoint that harmonizes with everything else the Bible says. The reason that I hold to views like this, even though they can seem strange at first, is because they still work and make sense when you read Jude, when you read 1 Peter, when you read 2 Peter. 
any other view, you have to go to those other places in the Bible and do all kinds of theological gymnastics to explain them away. And my belief is when it comes to interpreting the Bible, if you have a view that works everywhere in the Bible and then you have a view that doesn't, you should go with the view that makes sense everywhere in scripture where you don't have to twist and change your view to make it work. And angel incursion is the only view that does that. Well, just as the Lord would not allow the days of Noah or the days of Lot to continue unabated, the Bible tells us that the Lord will soon judge the earth that we're on. But like Lot and like Noah, praise God, the Lord has a plan for our deliverance. We're going to be raptured to be with him before judgment is poured out on the earth. And the world around us, and even many believers, may think that everything's just going to continue the way it always has. But Jesus said, guys, remember Lot. Remember Noah. Everyone around them didn't see it coming. You know it's coming. Live your life accordingly. Live your life ready for heaven. And there's one glorious difference between the judgment that's coming after the rapture and the days of Lot and Noah. And it's this, there will be an opportunity for those left behind to be saved, unlike in the flood. And you never know, you never know what that person you're sharing the gospel with, who may be a closed door right now, you never know how they may become open after the rapture. You don't know who's gonna read that pocket gospel you gave to someone who didn't seem to want it. You have no idea who's gonna listen to that CD or that jump drive or check out that website. You don't know who's gonna go back and read that email you sent when they suddenly need to understand why hundreds of millions of people have disappeared from the face of the earth overnight. We do know this. We know that after the rapture, it's gonna be the largest revival the world has ever seen. Countries, governments, and societies are not gonna to turn to the Lord. It's not gonna happen. So let's put all our energy and all of our effort into praying and boldly sharing with the people God has put in our lives. We may not be able to change the world, but there is a world you can change. There are people who are in your sphere of influence who need to know Jesus, and you can make a difference in your world. Praise God that because of his word, we know that when it all seems to be falling apart, we're closer than ever to it all coming together in, through, and around Jesus Christ, our coming King. We're closer than ever to the world being made new and things being made right. I can't wait for that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the hope of your word. And Lord, thank you that even when it is strange, Lord, you reveal incredible things to us through your word to help us understand you, the history of your people, but even the world we live in today. Thank you for insight and for, for sharing knowledge with us, God. Would you give us greater understanding of your word? Lord, may we not get swept up in misdirected efforts in these last days, but may we direct our efforts where you would have them directed in bold faith, boldly proclaiming the gospel and faithfully praying for people to come to know you, God. Would you do that work in us and help us to participate in these days, in this age, in a way that's going to bless you and please you, Lord God.
Help us to be aware of the days that we're living in. Help us to live with urgency for the work of your kingdom, Lord God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.